Dotnet Rocks episode 808, recorded live Saturday, September 29th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, Chicago, welcome to .NET Rocks! It's a herd of geeks. My goodness. I am intimidated. I am too. I think I might need to change. <laughs> we are here with Tony Surma. Give it up for Tony. You just wow. heard him. At Harper College. And uh, Tony just did a presentation that uh, hopefully changed some of your lives. I know it changed mine. And uh, I would just like to... Thank you for that, and now we're going to do it all over again. <laughs> so tell us, tell us what your job is at Microsoft. So I am director and CTO of Microsoft Disaster Response Program. It's a little-known program, but basically what we focus on is how we help response organizations and individuals who are affected by natural disasters when they occur. And this is, this is a, used to be a hobby of yours, sort of a side volunteer thing. Yeah, so How the, did that start? the background on it is, is that it came from two things. There was a push in corporate to find ways to apply technology to more and more scenarios. And at the same time, I was involved in a field organization called the Microsoft Technology Centers, MTCs. And we were a distributed set of technical folks in the field. Mm -hmm. And so Katrina was the first example where... There's a lot of technology that showed up in Katrina. Yeah. It was an amazing time for a tremendous disaster. And at the time, one of the biggest things was connecting people, people who had got broken up in mm -hmm. families and whatnot during that. And so the MTCs built the technology at the time we called it Katrina Safe, I believe. Okay. And the focus was, again, how do we connect those individuals? And the idea of bringing the technical expertise, bringing technology solutions at time of disaster, plus what was happening simultaneously with the corporate program focus, turned into what turned into Microsoft Disaster Response. And before me, um, a woman named Claire ran the program, and she ran it for the first so many years, and every time there was a big build, some big disaster, they needed responsibility, whether I was on the way to a um, game or I was on the way to a Mother's Day brunch, mm -hmm. I'd get a phone call, and then we'd assemble a great team of 40, 50 people who would randomly decide to volunteer themselves across Microsoft, and we'd build solutions to help with the Myanmar cyclone, right. H1N1, a number of situations since then. Sure. And then what happened recently is I found an opportunity to, to work, make a proposal, and literally create the job that I have. And so I turned what I would volunteer at 3 in the morning to do right. into what I get paid to do now, which is quite nice. It's, no, it's amazing. We'd all be so lucky, so congratulations on that. But that's got to change everything. It's one thing to volunteer just to firefight. What are you going to do in between the crises? Well, so that's the most important part. And what we're focused on is how you can be the most valuable when nothing's happening. Right. Now, the reality is there's 
there's minor and moderate things happening every day. Oh, sure. There's always something. But what we want to do is figure out how can we be prepared? Because the real trick is getting people prepared. Mm -hmm. You know, technology and solutions or anything is not going to help you if you don't have it set up. So what we focus on is during those downtimes, how can we build solutions? How can we make them sort of self-service, rapidly deployable, mm -hmm. make them easy to consume so that when literally the world is falling out from underneath you, you're not going through a 30-page deployment script. You're hitting a button. Before we get into the solutions to the problems, the problems seem like big problems, but you, you have figured out what are the three major things that people need in a disaster. And these are the basic problems that we try to fix on a big scale. Right. So the response organizations that we support, ultimately what they're trying to do is take the individuals that are affected, get them safe, mm -hmm. get them informed, and get them connected. And safe is pretty obvious. We need to get them to places where they can be fine, they can be fed, they can have shelter. Mm -hmm. And so information systems help them figure out where those places are, whether or not they're full. The informed side of things is, is that once you feel safe, the next thing you want to know is what's going on? What happened? Is it going to happen again? Right. What's the scenario? What's, what, what is happening? And so getting them informed, providing that kind of broadcast information and getting it to them in a way that isn't going to rely on TV and radio, because certainly for most industrialized nations, that's not the way people get all of their information anymore. Right, right. So that's the informed side. And then connected is once you know what's going on and you're safe, now you want to know, are my neighbors safe? Are my kids safe if they're off at college? Uh, is my mom okay? Can I tell my mom I'm okay so she won't worry about me? Right. And so being able to connect with loved ones, being able to get your status out there, and being able to experience the fact that other people are having the problems you're having is a major help. It's mm -hmm. just like if you get sick, you want to know somebody else has gone through this. Right. So this isn't the, the first time that an initiative has been done. Obviously, there's been a lot of initiatives. What are some of the biggest problems when when people stand up a you know a, an organization to help in a disaster what's what typically goes wrong so a lot of it comes from again literally you know the earth is shaking you know the world's turned upside down so what will work in a normal business environment won't work in that environment. So typically the challenges we see is that it's not something that's rapidly deployable. Mm -hmm. So it's a solution that you can't get out quickly. Or it's something where people built it, it's good, but it hasn't really been updated for a couple of years, even a couple of months, and technology is sure. a big change. And then the last thing that really ultimately affects it is, was it built with the right scope and the right target? Because what might work in a particular city, in a particular area, when there's one type of disaster there, is going to be a wildly different scenario when there's an earthquake in Australia versus a hurricane in Joplin, mm. Missouri, mm -hmm. or whatever the case is. So it's the applicability to many different scenarios. And uh, one of the scenarios that you painted here was, uh, you know, when a disaster strikes, that's not the time to go looking on GitHub for the thing that we did last time. Right, right. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, it's just like anything. It has to be automatic. Yeah. You can't be going and trying to create and design and build when literally, you know, you have seconds, you have minutes. And, and most of the time, the people who are responding as much as they're professionals and stuff, they're in the, they're in the midst of it, right? Mm -hmm. So they're affected by it themselves. So they don't need to have additional worries and concerns to get technology working or to find it. They mm -hmm. need to be able to quickly do it and then get back out to literally helping people. Now, was Katrina 2005, if I remember correctly? I think so. Because uh, I guess yes. I think yes. Like, yes. that software is only seven years old, but it predates the iPhone. Like, we're in a very different world now. Like the, the transformations are, are stunning. Right. Certainly the, the key transformations we've seen that, that have driven that is, is, is smartphones. Right. I mean, 
at least you know generally in the in the U.S. in most areas, most everybody has a phone, if not a smartphone in their hands. Mm-hmm. That's not the case back then. Yeah. Back then, it was all focused on someone sitting at a desktop to find people. Sure. Right now, in a disaster, the last thing you do is go sit at a desktop. You yeah. pull out your phone. Yep. The other thing that that didn't so much happen in that one, but happened in one right after is the cloud didn't exist. And right. when I say the cloud, I mean cloud computing, not like hurricane clouds. Yes. But when when it comes to cloud computing, that's a big enabler because at the time when we wanted to deploy a solution or do work, you'd literally have to worry about firewall rules yep. and right. is the admin available? Do they have enough servers? As well as the load that will come to a government or organization site. You know, the you know, pick a pick an organization. If it's in the middle of Katrina nowadays with everyone using the web, sure. the amount of web traffic they get in that day would be more than they probably got the last two or well, three every years. Time there's a, every time there's an earthquake, the USGS goes under this tremendous stress. And the rest of the time, nobody's there. Right, right. It's, it's so hit or miss. But you know, so, earthquake hits Twitter, USGS gets bombed. It's a perfect application for you know Azure, say. Yep. Yeah, and what we find is that you've got to have the ability to, to keep the cost low because these are nonprofits and governments, so we don't want a high-cost solution. Sure. But at time of need, it's got to it's gotta do that hockey stick scalability. Yeah, and that's yep. absolutely where Azure and other cloud services come into play. So uh, you have an announcement here today. Yep. So what we're doing, and we, we talked about here earlier, is, and it, it's less really what Microsoft's doing, and it's more what the response organizations in this place. So mm-hmm. right. NetHope, Crisis Commons, and Geeks Without Bounds, what they're doing is they're, they're partnering with Microsoft to be the technology provider, provide some solutions underneath it, but get really focused on how do we take that generosity. There's so many people who give camps, code camps, For what sure. have you. Yeah. They contribute their skills and their capabilities. And how do we gear that towards a set of results that will actually be usable in, in time of disaster? And reusable. And reusable and maintained. And also make sure they're targeting a set of scenarios that are important. Because again, you know, anything you build in helping people is great, mm-hmm. but you can probably find scenarios that are going to help more and more people or be more and more reusable. So what we're launching is the humanitarian toolbox. And what we're doing with that is we're going to have those response organizations lead the strategy and the definition. They're going to define what is that problem set. They're going to take crowdsourced ideas, figure out where they fit in that, and then take, again, the generosity of people who are, whether you're developers, database administrators, operations, UI, QA, anybody who's involved in technology, and drive together those solutions evolve them over time, keep them relevant, and make sure that we can have a set of solutions that are going to be very valuable in time of response. So there's two things. So our listeners can get involved by donating their time. And not only that, but we have been talking about this on the show lately. And we've actually been looking for a great charity to get behind for Mm -hmm. years. But, you know, it's a great opportunity to learn something when you're working on a toolbox like this. Because, you know, I want to learn what async and await is all about, like you said, I'm going to chisel off a piece for that. Or, you know, this is a great way to learn, a great way to get involved in a project, also a little visibility for yourself, and a great way to to really make a difference in the world. And so so there's that aspect of it. And then, hopefully, now, are are you envisioning a kind of, in a perfect world, uh, these guys that it's their business to to help out and to stand up sites and all this, that they would essentially pick components like from a wizard or go through a a process that's sort of a software-driven process, and it would just go up? Yeah, I mean, an ideal situation would be sort of that self-service portal, Mm -hmm. where either the people who are the response organization or 
a government agency, uh, an individual, somebody mm-hmm. who sees something happen, be able to go to that and say, you know, I'm having a disaster. I need to quickly communicate out to people in a scalable way. Checkbox. Yeah. I need to do X, Y, Z. Checkbox. Right. And basically build that solution set out of there. Now, that's the that's the broad goal. Mm-hmm. Right. Obviously, there's a lot of work to get there, yeah. but that's the direction we want to get. Because again, it's it's going to be much more valuable than I have to go get something, compile it, yeah. run through a page of deployment instructions, and just really be able to almost have a wizard for right. responding to a disaster. And, and we're also talking about time being of the essence here. The focus has to be on speed because most of the time, you know, when your battery goes out, when you have no power, that's that's your lifeline is gone. So you're, you're targeting a very short period of time where people act to get stuff to them and get it done. Right. I mean, if you think about it, we've become so dependent on technology and we assume our phone's going to run. It's not going to be bricked. Yeah. We assume. By that- the way, that was a really bad day being around him with a bricked phone. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're not happy when his phone isn't working. It's amazing how much dependency we have on it now. Right. And, then and sausage goes flying all over the floor. It's just not a good day. <laughs> But so we assume our phone's going to be there, not bricked. We assume we have internet connectivity. And once you start to assume those things, you start to get lazy and you don't have processes in place for what happens when they're not. Mm -hmm. And so we want to target these applications. And really, the call out would be to anybody targeting a a phone or a, a desktop or a client app to think about... Even though it may seem like you always have connectivity, what happens when you don't? Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking the, the classic Katrina scenario, which is the, the safe zones had nothing. They, yeah. they were safe, but they had no power, they had no internet, they had no nothing. And their people were there, and there was no way for them to communicate out. Like, but if you want to build a phone app that functions well for that, it's got to be a different style app. You've got to be able to get a list of folks when you're in connectivity and then go out of connectivity I mean, I can see a great app being I go into one of these recovery shelters, I'm finding people, matching them up to their names, maybe take a photo of them. It's like, look, your friend's alive, he's in this shelter, here's a picture of him. And then when I get back into connectivity, app lights up, pushes all the data up, make it really seamless. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik JustCode. If you're like me, you're probably using some productivity add-on in Visual Studio to check, refactor, and test your code. But how would you like to get a complete list of your solution's errors on the fly as you type, and not just for the opened files? The new kit on the block, JustCode, does just that for all supported .NET languages as well as JavaScript. It's like having a compiler running all the time, only that JustCode is faster and requires less CPU time. One area where JustCode is definitely better is performance. The tool provides the fastest code analysis and better performance without slowing down Visual Studio. Another reason to try it is JavaScript support. It'll help you read, navigate, and refactor your JavaScript code better than you've ever imagined. Learn more about the features JustCode offers and download a trial at telerik.com justcode. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. There's a natural scenario. One of the things we find is the best applications in disaster response are ones you would use normally. Right. So one of the things we're looking at is, say you're running late and you can't pick up your kids. You want to ping your wife or your neighbor or your mom or somebody. That's not that much different than there's been an earthquake and I want to let those five people know I'm okay or right. not. Mm. So if you build that, we call it like a personal broadcast application, mm. an application that maybe uses SMS, which works better when mm-hmm. there isn't connectivity, so yeah. text messages. Some app that would be something you'd use normally, you'd get used to using it. Right. So that when there is a disaster, then you'd, you'd know to go to it. But then it also drives a, a set of technologies that will, will be valuable both 
you know, sort of in normal life as well as response. And so they become less strange scenarios and more complicated. Yeah, because the challenge here has got to be, we like said we're get lazy. We're not, we got LTE everywhere now. We're not bandwidth constrained, right? I don't travel outside of, if I'm not traveling outside of Chicago, I got this huge bandwidth. So why would I bother using a text message when I could just upload a, a much bigger package? And, and same with, and if I don't have connectivity, app just doesn't work. Why? Because I always have connectivity. Why would I worry about that? I just, I'm, a, I'm concerned that the thinking that's going to have to go into Absolutely. dealing with low connectivity, no connectivity, no power, being conservative with power. How long can I keep this phone right. going yeah. as I'm away from electricity? Yeah, and I think actually there's other ways we're trying to motivate people to think about that. SMS is also very common across every kind of phone, Sure, right? yeah, it works for everything. So it also, there's other benefits to think about that. I know that when they're looking at Windows Phone 8 and other things, there's going to be ways of actually measuring the power usage mm -hmm. and not just how much memory and how much CPU. So hopefully people will be driven towards that thinking. And I just think that overall, for better or for worse, there tends to be more disasters. There tends to be more scenarios over time. So more and more people will be affected by this. And sure. hopefully they'll start to see, you know, the value of that building that into regular application. The example we used earlier is if I told you right now to name the phone number for like six people you normally talk to, yeah. you probably don't know no. their phone number. Right. I, think I know mine and my yeah. mother's because she hasn't changed it in 30, 40 years. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's about it. I don't know yours. Yeah, that's we, funny. We isn't talk it? almost every day. That's right. I don't know your phone number. I it's in my phone. I couldn't rattle off yours either. No idea. So, um, you know how Billy was talking about, you know, people zone out. At, you haven't heard Billy's talk yet, but. You know, the problem with code addicts is that we listen to somebody describe a problem and three minutes later we're writing code in our head and not listening. And so that's what I was sort of doing. <laughs> but I, I was listening, but, I, you know, just ideas. Um, the idea that if somebody loses power in their phone but the other guy does, to have uh, messages passed to them through somebody else, you know, so that it's not always about the one person in one experience but while that person is still connected and still identified, as they can hook up messages for other people so that they can become a hub of information for those people as well. Hmm. Yep, that would be a great example. Another one is, is people assume that since they have a copy of some information locally, a document, what have you, it's up in SkyDrive or Dropbox or whatever, right. that it's always available. Right. But if you, your phone dies and you have no internet connectivity, it isn't available. But if someone else, you had a way of maybe doing a delegated access just yep. for a moment in time, mm -hmm. a way of getting access to that with someone else's phone, we thought about those scenarios too. And that's a very important thing because someone will probably have a phone, but it's probably not you. Right. I guess the question is, how many apps are we talking about? How, how much time have you spent on this piece of it? Have you got a landscape of what you think you need to build? So we, we have a spectrum of the scenario and the challenges. Some of it's applications, some of it's approaches to applications, mm -hmm. some of it's infrastructure. It's, it's kind of really all over the board. And, and so it's one of those things where it's hard to say a number of apps, but it's definitely not one. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a suite of solutions that are going to be some very generic and some very specific because what happens in a flood is very different than an earthquake, mm -hmm. very different from a, a hurricane. So this is definitely a situation where it isn't just we need five people to spend half an hour right. and right. we'll be good. And we should also reiterate the fact that Microsoft isn't running this thing. They're providing resources, but the people that are actually in the business of doing disaster recovery are at the, are at the helm. And that's a very important point. And, and, and why it's important is because it's their business. Right. They know it better than anyone else. They're also going to be the ones who use it. So they know when it works. 
and they know when it doesn't work, and they can put that feedback into the system. They can also make sure this is sustained so people know their contributions mm-hmm. aren't going to be used once and then forgotten. This is going to be something that will carry forward by those response organizations. Yeah, I do think that's the frustrating part for me as a developer, participating in these various, I mean, genuinely good causes. I mean, it's, I don't feel like I'm using my skills well when I paint a wall, but once the wall is painted, it stays painted. Mm. You know, they, for an extended period of time, you spend a, a week or a weekend building some code, and then you have to go back to your right. life. Does that code stay alive? And that's ultimately the goal of this is not only does that code stay alive, it gets updated. And if you think about it, there's a selfless part, which, as you said, is to contribute to the good. Sure. There's also the selfish part you mentioned earlier. And, and yep. selfish in this case is good. You're going to learn something new. Sure. So you build, you build it in MVC2. Mm-hmm. Someone's going to come along and say, boy, I really wish I knew MVC4. And they'll be able to take that application, move update it, it, move it up. They want to play with Hadoop with big data, something they've never used at work or doesn't yeah. make sense at work. Helps build the resume, helps build that skill set. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the big data side of this because I think, you know, knowing that, that the software that was built for Katrina largely, you know, didn't get used again or, you know, completely transformed. If we can actually keep these libraries going for years, we start to accumulate data. You know, I love the analytics side of this. It's starting to look at it, not just that we responded to a disaster, but we keep getting better at it. As well as the information is not usually private or secret, right? It's mm-hmm. not about you. It's about what's happening in the sky above a zip code. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so that information is going to be meaningful beyond that current scenario. Mm-hmm. And it's it's in silos. These organizations all have that data. So we're also working to kind of help build an architecture. It's not XML-based or you know anything like that. <laughs> but mm-hmm. to build an architecture that's going to pull together the information. So say you wanted to build an application to learn how to use uh, – tornado information in the early warning system so that you could build a phone app. Mm-hmm. You're probably not an expert in tornado systems and early warning information, but if you could get access to that data, access to those feeds, transform it in the way that it's worthwhile on a phone, now you've added value where you have a particular skill set right. and not necessarily the domain expertise. Yeah, there's a mashup opportunity there. Absolutely. Right? It's really an interesting part about surfacing more of this data in forms that we can start combining them in different ways. You know, one of the, one of the challenges that I can foresee there is uh, the privacy issue. You know, when somebody needs help, you know, maybe they're, they're on their roof in a flood and you come by in a boat, you know, you want to identify them. Uh, you know, what's your name? Well, I'm not telling you my name, you know. What's, you know. If you give me your social security number, I can, you know, hook you up with your loved ones. Um, no, you know, so that, that's a kind of a human problem more than a technological problem. Right, and it, I think it's one of those situations where, by the response organizations being in charge. It's like anything else. They know the regulations. Mm-hmm. They know yeah. how to make that work. They might have certain licenses or whatever makes that applicable. And so having them be the ones to do the execution yeah. both allows them to actually help that person, but also allows them to give the feedback to say an application has to be built this certain way right. or there's certain right. standards we have to abide by. Because absolutely, everyone wants to help. You want to do some good. You want to do that. But you know, a polite question to help someone is not that different than a spam email asking you for yeah. your social security number. Sure. So sure. there's a fine line there. Yeah, interesting problem. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. 
Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago, I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. So, I mean, clearly we're going to... Is this part of your role is going to be help collect these specs, and the the, uh, the use cases and the stories around all these different apps that need to be built? Yeah, so we mentioned that Microsoft's going to be providing the solutions and some of the technology support underneath. Mm-hmm. But with my role being different than folks like in a product group or something, my focus is on disaster response. So while we're not one of those organizations, we respond every time there's a natural disaster, something happens in the world. So we do build up that domain expertise so we can help build those specs, as well as we're really good at translating that to technology. Technology. Mm-hmm. And so we can help, you know, sort of the lower level specs of saying, here's a scenario, but here's a good way that you can enable that with Azure, or you can enable that right. with something that's on a phone, whether it's iOS, Android, or whomever. Mm-hmm. Now, um, where's the website for the Humanitarian Toolbox? So it's humanitariantoolbox.net. Okay. And uh, it's just stood up, and we're recording this ahead of time, but uh, it's by the time people hear this, it'll be up. Yep. And so if you get to that website, again, humanitariantoolbox.net, two things will happen. You'll find out the information. You'll see those specs, find the opportunities to submit your own ideas and engage. And and what you're going to see the very first days it's out, it's obviously going to be a little bit more sparse. Mm -hmm. And it's going to build up as everybody gets engaged. And so that's the one thing you'll find. The other thing you'll start to find is see what's already being built as it goes on. And that's a key thing because I think sometimes people look at a project like this and you wonder, do I actually have skills that I could contribute? Or the blank paper issue, you know, the first guy to write code, the first gal to get in there is going to be a lot harder than the second or third. And so getting that code, getting the information up there will hopefully help incent other people to get engaged and build on top. You know, now, and just so that everybody knows, this is something that Richard and I are all in. Like uh, at every road trip stop, we're going to be talking about the Humanitarian Toolbox and uh, hopefully engage some of you guys, the, our listeners, to, to get involved and to do some things, possibly even at the events that we're going to. We're, yep. we're, we're going to try to work that out. So... Uh, it's going to be a, a major theme for the rest of the road trip and, 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 it, and beyond. And that's great. That's very important because people don't always know. They have this generosity in them. They want mm-hmm. to do some good. They have some skills. And where or what do I do? Right. And so that visibility, that information getting to people, hopefully will catch a lot of people who are sitting there right now who want to help but right. don't know kind of where to engage. So we're going to end up with this all being open source? How are we going to handle the code? So it's going to be an open source repository, most mm-hmm. likely on CodePlex. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to do is that's really going to be driven by those response organizations. So again, we're underlying technology. It's not our code. It's the community's code with right. ownership by those response organizations. And so it'll all be set up so that those individual response organizations, others, anyone who plays in the space would be able to use and, and leverage that. Because again, the goal here is to really drive that impact and drive that impact at scale. Right. And so if, if a problem can be solved with open source and no one needs anything else to do it, that's the best possible solution because everyone has access to it and you're done. But I can also see that you want to, you know, when I think about speed of deployment, I'd like uh, virtual machines already configured off, sitting in a cloud service somewhere where I could just go, okay, light one of those, and light one of those, and light one of those, and prepare this for elastic scale as everybody hits right. it. And, you know, that... The, but the, the repository so that I have developers able to work on it. And then there's got to be some intermediary that says, okay, that code's in place where it's ready to move into the cloud and be available 
uh, when when a disaster strikes. And then it all has to work together, you know, with those sort of plug-in interface yep. or standard API or interfaces or however that works. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a DevOps side of this. Mm -hmm. We need to have mm -hmm. this, have not just sort of an agile open source way of building it, but an agile open source way of deploying it and not mm -hmm. reading docs and not doing those other aspects. And right. so just like a good open source project, there should be releases, there should be definitions of quality, there should be ways for it to be deployed. And tested. All of those, and tested. In the field. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things we find too is that the best solution is the one that works. And that's mm -hmm. an obvious thing to say. Mm -hmm. But, you know, sometimes as a technologist, the best solution is the one that's the most fun to build. Right. And so example we use is always like the SMS text messaging. Very low fidelity, not yeah. super interesting from a technology point not of view. Not high on the sexiness scale. Right. Yeah. But it also can be accessed by virtually everybody in the planet who has a phone, which is a lot more people than have a smartphone, right. Right. than have a dedicated PC or what have you. Now, are the networks... Um, that handle the phone networks that handle SMS prepared for that kind of traffic or is that stuff that can be offloaded into Azure? So it, what we found is that when there's a disaster, even when you have a network up, you have exactly the scenario you talked about where they're not ready for that kind of traffic. Mm -hmm. There's some capabilities to prioritize and other things. But what we found is that if you can have, whether it's an SMS message that then gets received by Azure and then knows to broadcast to these 10 or 20, or it's a small HTTP request, something that's going to mm -hmm. sort of span out. And mm -hmm. so you want to really limit the bandwidth usage there because that's going to be, when you have bandwidth, that right. is going to be the hardest thing to get access yeah, it's to. Very, right? It's very Twitterish. I want to send out 120 characters of, I'm okay, I'm here, you know, I'll be in touch soon. Send it once. Send it and, once. And everybody I, needs to know it can get it. Absolutely. Yeah. And now at the same time, you have to also balance if you can't access that server, but you can send an SMS. Mm -hmm. So there's those two tensions there of limiting bandwidth, but also being able to work in a limited bandwidth or a disconnected state. Sure. Whereas if I can't hit that server, I can still get a text message. And so out. possibly, you know, you work for a company that has some sort of solution to this kind of thing technologically. We'd love you to get involved. And so uh, is there a place on the website where those companies and technology uh, people can get into it as well on a partner scale kind of thing? Yep, absolutely. I mean, there's really those two parts. One is through the website itself. They'll have mm -hmm. information there about partnering information and, and how to contribute. But then also the response organizations that drive that, they already have established partnership programs and work with a lot of corporations to leverage technology, the human resources, yeah. what have you that they have to contribute. You know, there was a cool story that came out of the Japanese tsunami where all these photos got damaged from the waters and mm. essentially they crowdsourced graphic artists to repair the pictures. Mm. Just thinking, you know, same sort of thing. There's some interesting software there that would help facilitate just all the different kinds of skills that are needed remotely uh, when these things happen. Not just in the, It's not just direct save life, it's restoring quality to life. Mm. Right, absolutely. Again, it's like that safe informed and then connected. Part mm -hmm. of that connection is getting back to your normal life. Sure. And everything may be okay, but if you don't have access to critical information, that was whether it's a family photo mm -hmm. or checking account number or whatever that is. Yeah. And I think what we find when we do these responses is the stuff that comes out of this, because it's such a unique scenario, mm -hmm. may not always be directly applicable, but there's models and there's approaches sure. and you know things that we learned that didn't seem immediately applicable. And then a few years later, technology changes and you realize that what we did in response to a particular disaster is now a mainstream solution. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really like your thinking around the idea that any of these apps would be apps we want to use routinely anyway. Right. So that people are already familiar with them when they need them. Right. And you know, just like most apps and most content, 
the the things that become irrelevant need to be weeded out regularly. So reviews on a regular basis need to happen. Right. I mean, this is yeah. this is a real big, real software project. Yeah. It's, it's not a hobby, right? And so what's going to have to happen is all the same rigors of that. We, we sure. want to make sure it's still volunteering and it's, it's still absolutely something to learn from, but it's got to have that impact. So it's got to have all the software engineering behind it that's going to drive that. Yeah, there is going to need to be a, a Linus Torvald somewhere, you know. Some, <laughs> I don't want to call him the dictator for life, but it's that, you know, the, the, you need somebody who oversees everything and make sure that there's some coordination between the needs of the different groups and what's important and what needs to be culled and trying to set priorities. It's a, you're going to be hurting a lot of cats here. Well, right. And you want to balance multiple people wanting to take different ways of sure. solving a problem while at the same time, most people are doing this want to see impact. Yeah. And so if they write the one application that doesn't get used because another one beat it out, that's also going to demotivate. So mm -hmm. there is a curation aspect. Yeah, of I, I, I don't do you want my that? time wasted and tell me to get me to build something that I re that people really need. Right. And it, it, but it concerns me that we tend to build the same thing over and over again, or you know, multiple versions of the same sort of thing. Right. Then uh, again, different you know, having several teams try to to work out uh, on the same thing and pick the best of breed is not a bad idea either. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it's, it's that classic tension of you want a bunch of local innovation, if you will, but you also want a desired result. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how do you how do you balance the two? And it's it's you want more than one solution, but you want don't want a hundred. Right. 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 Yeah, and so some of our friends are involved as well. So, uh, MC, MCW Brian Brian Randall, Randall. yeah, yeah, he's not, doing not, some TFS work. Yeah, I'm not quite sure all, how all these roles are going to shake out yet. But. I think that's what we're all figuring out. I yeah. think what and you find this when there's a response or when there's a preparation like this. There's so much passion and interest, mm -hmm. but you have to figure out who can do what, who's best suited to do that. Right. And so, yeah, we've definitely we've got partners, we've got the response organizations. We've seen so much response already wanting to get involved. It's just a matter of you know driving that towards the right result. Well, we'll get the word out for you. Excellent. What do you guys think? Is this awesome or what? Well, we'd like to uh, thank Tony Serma for being here. One more hand for Tony and what he's doing. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van.